Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me, yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be cleaner than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart and renew a steadfast spirit within me, O God. Don't cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Rather, restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God. You who are God, my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You don't delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You don't take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. To you, O God, I give my praise. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. O God, as we consider this prayer the Psalm of David, we pray for insight and understanding on what kind of relationship you're calling us into with you and with each other. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're continuing today our fall teaching series on the subject of success. Uh, what does the Bible have to say about uh, being successful? And so over the last few weeks, we have been looking at some uh, Bible characters, Bible uh, stories about people in the Bible who uh, could be identified as being uh, successful. We looked at uh, the story of Joseph several weeks ago. We looked at the story of God himself and his success of creation. Last week, we talked about uh, Job, who by all accounts, God deemed successful. And so if you want to go back and catch up on our series, you can always go to adventhope.org where we have audio and a video ready there for you to catch up on things. And so today we're turning our attention to one of the most famous Bible characters, the, the man uh, David, and there is really no one outside of Jesus himself who is more referenced throughout all of the Bible than the man uh, David. In fact, he was the pro prototypical follower of God, one who God identified as a person after his own heart. When God, was, when God established David as the king of Israel or the king-to-be, uh, he overtly called him a man after his own heart, a person that, that was similar to, to God, who was like God in a character. In fact, uh, David is so prominent in uh, the Bible that when Jesus' disciples were uh, trying to convince others of the authenticity of Jesus and Jesus' message as the Messiah of the Israelites, they uh, tried to link and were, were successful in linking uh, Jesus' genealogy to David. That was a way of affirming that Jesus was the Messiah, that he was related 
to David. And so David was that much of a luminary figure in the Bible that uh, they would link Jesus to David. That was evidence that Jesus was who he said he was. So it's with this, that in mind that we think about the story that preceded Psalm 51, this confession of David. David, this luminary figure of the Bible, called a person after God's own heart, but a man who did some terrible things. Terrible, terrible things. Uh, most infamously, he murdered one of his soldiers and uh, sexually assaulted, you might say, uh, this soldier's wife. So the story of David and uh, Bathsheba is one familiar if you've read the Bible uh, before. It was in the time when kings went off to war. They would send their soldiers out, and it's just the way things worked. Everybody would, during a certain time of year, year go to war. You were expanding your kingdom, and that's how it happened. And we're told that uh, David sent his soldiers out, but in an interesting move, remained home in the city on his own. So all the able-bodied men of the nation were out fighting, and David was, uh, was somewhat mysteriously uh, at home by himself. And we're told that uh, he uh, went up on the rooftop of his palace. Now, the palace would have been a high spot in the city, and so he went up in the rooftop. Nothing unusual about that, but it was in the evening. And uh, everybody at this time would know that in the evening, that is the time when people bathe on their rooftops. And so the implication that David was up on the rooftop when all the able-bodied men were there in the evening uh, that indicates that there was some motive going on. And sure enough, as the story goes on, he identifies a, a woman who is doing what people would do in the evening on a rooftop in the city. They were bathing. And she was uh, bathing, and uh, she catches his eye, and he asks that she, been, she be brought to him. Now, we can imagine what kind of place this uh, put her in, the king. You know, you don't have a whole lot of opportunity to say no when the, the, the king comes and instructs that you're going to come to him. And so uh, we, we see here, again, a, a man, un unfortunately a familiar story, a man using a power to, to compel a woman to do his bidding. And so the story is starting off bad already. And so they have a, uh, a relationship, if you want to call it that. Again, by accounts of today, we would have to identify this as a sexual assault compelled by a powerful man to come before uh, him. This is not a good start to this story. And so, uh, but it gets worse. So they, 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 David commits this, uh, this sin against her. She's a married woman. And as it turns out, she's married to one of David's soldiers. And so uh, she becomes pregnant. It's a thing. It's going to blow up. He knows this. It's going to be all over social media. And so he instructs uh, his, his general to send this soldier to the front line knowing that the soldier will be killed. So in essence, he arranges for the soldier's um, murder, this, this woman's Bathsheba's husband. And of course, he is uh, killed. And so now we have a murder and sexual assault on this, uh, this, this man, this luminary figure of the Bible. Uh, we actually catch up to the story in dramatic style in 2 Samuel uh, chapter uh, 12. And so in 2 Samuel chapter 12, the, this, this, all of this has already happened. The, 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 the man has been murdered. Uh, they, the, uh, David now takes the, this woman, Bathsheba, into his house and marries her among the other wives that he has. 
And, uh, and then David receives a, a special guest. And uh, this man's name is Nathan. We'll catch up to the story here. It says, The Lord sent Nathan to David. And when he came to him, he said, uh, There were two men. So he's, Nathan now is a, before David the king. He's a, he's a messenger from God, and he tells this parable. There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, uh, but the poor man had nothing except one little lamb that he had bought, and he raised it and grew up with it and his children. He shared its food and drink from the cup, and the lamb even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prevail a meal for the travel, traveler who had come, but instead he took the little lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. Okay, so you got the story. There's rich man, poor man. Rich man has all these animals. Poor man has this little lamb who he's raised as a, a daughter. Guest comes to visit the rich man. Uh, the rich man, instead of using one of his many animals to feed the traveler, chooses this lamb from this poor man, this brand, lamb who's been raised as a daughter. It's, it's a horrific, horrific a story. So, I mean, David just takes the bait. He's all in. Uh, we read that David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. I mean, he sees immediately the, the moral issues with this, with this story. Of course, David is not realizing that this is a parable. He must pay for the lamb four times over because he did, did such a thing and had no pity. And then uh, Nathan drops the bomb. You are the man. You are the man, Nathan said. And suddenly, in an instant, David knew exactly what was going on, exactly what was being communicated to him. Nathan says, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul, the previous king who had been harassing David. I gave you your master's house, your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all of Israel and Judah. And if all of this had been too little, I would have given you even more. So God is communicating that, well, you had every, everything. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. So God is accusing here David of, of murder. Uh, now for the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the, the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. It's a, it's a terrible story. I mean, it's a terrible story. Again, David, you don't get a more luminary figure in all of the Bible outside of Jesus himself than, than David. And yet here we have David mired in this awful and a horrific uh, story of, of assault and, and murder. And yet, what's maybe most surprising about this story is that God doesn't give up on him. I mean, by all accounts, David is someone that we would think God should give up on. I mean, assault... Murder? How, how can, you, how can you, you, you stick around with this, this guy? I mean, this is, this is going to be the king of your people? Uh, it just doesn't, it doesn't sit well, I think, with us, certainly in our, in our modern understanding, and it didn't, didn't then either. 
And so uh, what, is, what is going on here? Uh, God not giving up on David. Now, let's be clear. David suffered some terrible things because of these actions. I mean, his family was altered forever. In fact, they were um, a mess. Uh, he had continual problems for generations to come. So there were certainly some immediate consequences of this uh, horrific circumstance and situation that David put himself in. But, but again, surprisingly, God doesn't give up on David. And so we have to ask ourselves, why? Why doesn't God give up on David? And I think the, the initial response to that question is found in David's response in our text of emphasis today, uh, today Psalm 51. The, 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 the Bible writers, the commentators have, in some of the Bibles have indicated that Psalm 51 is part of this whole narrative. In fact, in my Bible it says that this is for the director of music, Psalm 51. A psalm of David when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. So this is the preface to Psalm 51. So Psalm 51 is David's response to this, this situation of Nathan revealing to him his sin. And we see David opening his heart. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing failing love. Against you I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Create in me a pure heart, David says, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart that, God, you will not despise. Here David, despite this horrendous, horrendous situation that he's made for himself, uh, acknowledges his wrongdoing and this required an incredible amount of uh, humility. And so as we wrestle with this, the implications of the God sticking with David, and we ask ourselves, well, wh why? Why would he stick with, with David? Why would he continue to, to use David and to continue to work with David? The only response is David's own response, that David responded with humility, and David resp responded with uh, repentance. And so as we think about this, as, as we're thinking about like success and what is success in God's eyes, and we've talked about other attributes of su success last week, the story of Job, that success was having faith even in the midst of turmoil and terrible things uh, happening to you. And we looked at the story of Joseph and, and his, his experience with success today. In the story of David, we see that success is rooted in humility, in humility, having the capacity have the, having the capacity to seek uh, forgiveness and, and to have repentance, to express repentance. And so as we consider that, we have to come to the, our, the own reality in our own terms that, like, okay, if humility is such a big deal to God, such a big deal that it was able to, to in essence, uh, rescue David, that it was his humility and his ability to truly be repentant, then, then humility is, is something that's a part of of our plan for success as well, and yet humility is incre incredibly uh, difficult. Uh, in fact, you could make the case that in, in today's day and age, humility has become increasingly uh, difficult. I mean, we do not live in, a, in an age or a city even where humility is uh, considered a great attribute, right? I mean, look at the times around us. You don't have to go very far in the, in the headlines to find that humility is not something that is promoted. If, if anything, the opposite 
is the case. And so the idea that humility is rooted in success for God is one that's challenging to us because we are challenged by the very idea of humility. And so that leads to the question, well, like, okay, what is it that's so difficult about humility? And I think there are a couple of responses to, to that question. First of all, like, humility is, is considered a, a weakness, certainly in our contemporary culture. Humility is often considered our weakness, a weakness. But this isn't just something about contemporary culture. I mean, this goes way back. In fact, the philosopher Aristotle, you know, a lot of Western thought comes out of the, the Greek philosophers, and Aristotle was one of the, one of the greats. Uh, Aristotle praised self-sufficiency and belittled humility and what he called lowliness. He thought humility had nothing to do with a good and moral character and was against humility, against humility. Uh, centuries uh, later, the philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche also castigated anyone who practiced humility. He thought that, that humility was absolutely a, a moral failure and that uh, humans should not be seeking humility. And, uh, and again, related it to weakness and lack of strength and uh, saw it as something to be completely avoided. And so we have a history in, in philosophy, Western philosophy in particular, of belittling uh, humility and looking at humility and thinking it's synonymous with a weakness. And so this is a challenge. And again, we see this today. Humility is not thought of something for the, for the strong, but something for the weak. And in a city where everybody has to be strong, you have to be strong in your career, you have to be uh, aggressive in your career, the idea of being strong and aggressive and humble, those two often uh, don't t uh, go together. And so this leads to the other problem that humility is not properly or well-defined. You know, I would suggest to you that humility uh, doesn't mean that you aren't a confident person. Uh, humility doesn't mean that you don't have the, the, the ability to speak out when you need to speak out. Uh, humility, do, humility doesn't mean that you aren't uh, excellent at something. You can be excellent at something and still be uh, humble. You can speak out and still be humble. You can be a competent person and still be humble. Humility simply acknowledges that you understand that there is a higher power beyond yourself and that you recognize that there are other people in the world and in the universe. Uh, in one sense, humility, as we think about it uh, today and properly, is uniquely uh, Christian. Uh, Philippians chapter 2, the apostle Paul talks about the idea of humility. And gets, this uh, contradicts Aristotle and Nietzsche uh, directly. In Philippians 2, Paul says this, don't do anything out of selfish ambition or conceit. Rather, in humility, value others. Not looking out to your own interests, but to the interests of others. See, so, so Paul is saying, like, humility understood properly is how you understand your relationship with other people. See, that's the problem. Like, if you start to think about yourself as the center of the universe, uh, then, and, and if, if you believe that that's the case, then there is no place for humility, because the only person that you have to take care of is yourself, and so you've got to exalt yourself into the primary position in your own being. And this was the philosophy of Aristotle and Nietzsche and many. You are uh, the center of your universe. So Paul is coming with a completely different philosophy. No, that's not how it works. You need to consider 
others because we are designed to live in community with other people and so you cannot put yourself first always and if you do that you're going to be you're going to be out of whack with everyone else and what's going on in society so consider others in your relationships with each other have the same mindset as Jesus Paul says who being in very nature God didn't consider equality with God something to be held on to uh, but rather made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. Now we know that Paul can say this knowing that Jesus was not afraid of speaking out. In fact, if there was one person not, not unwilling to speak out, it was Jesus. He spoke out against the powers that be in his day and age. He spoke out strongly. Uh, he could speak his mind. Jesus was confident in who he was, right? I knew, he knew who he was I'm, to the point where he was able to say, I and God the Father are one. He was not confused about who he was and he was not unconfident about who he was. And yet he also expressed uh, humility and humbleness. And so those two are, 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 are not separate from each, each other, those attributes. You can be humble and you can speak out. You can be humble and you can be powerful. You can uh, be humble and also be excellent at, at things. Uh, so Paul says we should be like Jesus in that case. Uh, Matthew, this is uh, Jesus himself. Truly, I tell you, unless you change and become humble like little children, you'll never enter the kingdom of God. This is Jesus talking about this idea of humility. Therefore, therefore whoever takes the lowly position of this child, he, we can imagine him speaking with a group of children around. He was, he was doing children's focus one day. And unless you take the lowly position, the humble position of this child uh, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, you will never be my followers. This is the message of Jesus. So this idea of success is rooted in humility is essential to us understanding God's vision of what success is. Uh, finally, in Luke chapter 14, uh, we read this. When he noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, uh, Jesus told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, don't take the place of honor. For a person more distinguished than you may have, may have, been, may have been invited. Uh, if so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, uh, give this person your seat, and then you will feel humiliated. And you will have to take the least important seat. But when you are invited, take the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he will say, friend, move up to this place, and then you will be honored in the presence of other guests. For all of those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. And so the point being that Jesus and Paul are trying to get across is that like humility isn't about being weak, or, or, or mild or unconfidence, but being thoughtful about your position in the community that is this, this planet and our relationship with other people and our relationship with God. That's humility, being considerate of where you stand amongst others. And when you're always putting yourself first or the most important or that your voice is the best voice, it just it doesn't work. It doesn't, it doesn't work. By the way, have you ever sat at the wrong seat at a wedding. I, I get to go to a lot of weddings. Thank you. You know, I, 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 thank you for getting married and inviting me. And uh, I will confess that I have never, you know, taken the seat of, like, the groom accidentally. You know, they always have that little table off to the, 
off to the side, the, 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 the bridal party, and it would be rather embarrassing if you were to go sit at that table and then you weren't in the, in the bridal party. Has it ever, anyone ever done that? Um, this, is, this is the image that Jesus is, is giving here. Like, you go sit at that table, and then someone has to say, oh, I'm sorry, could you, could you move over to the... Because all the other seats are taken by this time, so there's only the chair by the door. Could you go sit over there? So this is the implication of what Jesus is saying. Like, you have to be thoughtful about your relationship with other, other people, and that's what humility really is. And so... Uh, unfortunately, we're challenged by this idea of humility because we often relate humility with weakness and we just don't have humility properly defined for us. But humility is really an appropriate understanding of one's relationship to others and to the world around us. Finally, we are challenged by this idea of humility uh, because humility requires transparency and transparency can be terrifying. I mean, can you imagine David? I mean, David did a, a, several horrible, horrible things. But the truth is, he had to be uh, a transparent if he was really going to be and express uh, humility. And he was. In fact, Psalm 51 is recorded uh, not just for those people in his kingdom at the time. I mean, he, he wrote down this prayer. So he had this prayer. We don't know how it came about, but in, in, in his chamber, alone with God, he's having this expression of, you know, help me, oh God, uh, I want a clean heart, but he, he took time to write this down. In fact, it became a, it became a, a psalm, a song that people would, would sing, and so, so David's prayer of confession became a song for his people, but not just for his day and age, that here we are 3,000 years now after David, and we're still reading of David's misdeeds, his confession. That takes some serious transparency. And so we ask ourselves, like, how could, how could God s- stick to David? How, why didn't he just give up on David? And we see, look, it's rooted in this idea of David and his ability to have humility and to be a transparent, and yet that is incredibly, incredibly uh, difficult. Transparency is, is challenging. I mean, have you ever had to be really, really transparent about something, in particular something where you were just completely off the map, you just, you just messed up in a big way and you had to be transparent about that, that is not easy, especially if you can get away with not doing that. If you can get away, I mean, he was king, what was he going to do, who's going to, what are they going to do to him? He could have just been like, no, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what you're talking about. Transparent, he was transparent and that's challenging and transparency can be incredibly, incredibly difficult for for each and every one of us, I, you know, I would imagine that you all had experiences where you had to be transparent about something, and it's uncomfortable, and it's difficult, and yet we see from Psalm 51 that it's this transparency that is indicative of David's humility. Create in me a pure heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. I have sinned against uh, you, O oh God. By the way, this is one of the, another characteristic that we see in all these stories of these uh, people in the Bible. That when they when they evaluate like the wrongdoing that they have done, they always relate it not just to the person that they've hurt, but to God. Recognizing like when we hurt each other, when we hurt each other, when we do things against each other, we're not just hurting the other person; that we're hurting our relationship with God. Again, if there was something that, that each of us could take away with, 
If, if the, the world could embrace, it's this idea that when we hurt other people, when we neglect other people, when we don't stand up for other people, we're not just hurting them. We're hurting ourselves and we're hurting God. See, David understood that. Like, this, is, this, this sin that I've done is against you, oh God. And Joseph and others understood that idea that, boy, when we hurt other people, we're hurting ourselves and we're hurting our relationship, most importantly, with God. I've sinned, David said, and done what is evil in your sight. David understood this. And so the only way we can reconcile like, why God would stick around with David is because of this humility and this ability to be transparent. And yet, when we think about wanting to be successful like uh, David or like others or be successful in our work in a city that requires success, we can see that success in God's eyes is rooted in humility, and yet that is difficult. By the way, this is maybe an important note to reiterate something we've said many times here before, and that is you don't have to read very far in the Bible. You don't have to read many of the stories of the Bible to recognize that there are no heroes in the Bible. You know, if you go back, if you remember, if you grew up in a, in a Christian setting, you were probably told about all these heroes of the Bible, and you read the Bible stories about people like David and, and, and Joseph and Abraham and on and on and on, the heroes of the Bible. But the truth is, when you dig a little farther, maybe you get a little older and you start reading beyond you know, what the, the Bible stories told you, Uncle Arthur told you, you quickly find out that those, those books were shielding you from the full story. And you get down to the Bible text and we realize, you know, all these people, all these people were horrible. They were terrible, terrible people. I mean, David did a terrible, terrible thing. David by all accounts, should have been in, in prison for the rest of his life, right? If that happened to somebody today, if you, you, you sexually saw someone and then murdered their husband, you would be in prison for the rest of your, your life. These are terrible, terrible things that people have done. And so there are really no heroes in the Bible except one. There's only one hero in the Bible. That's the story of the Bible. There is one hero in the Bible. And so as we think about the implications of this, like, success is equal to humility and we recognize like humility is incredibly difficult if I really think about it. We have to ask ourselves what hope do we have? Well the hope can't come in just like being like one of the Bible heroes because they weren't heroes. And so our hope is only rooted in the one hero that is in the Bible and that is Jesus. And we find in Matthew chapter uh, 27 this story about an expression of humility that uh, Jesus stood before the, the governor, and he was, he was being questioned, and he knew that his life was, was, was to end soon. And so this, this governor, who was somewhat a third party to the, the actions that were happening here, he asked Jesus, are you, the, are you the king of the Jews? That was the accusation against Jesus that he was claiming to be the, uh, the new monarch. And Jesus replied, you have said so. See, Jesus was not afraid to speak up, by the way. He was not afraid. He was not weak. He was not, not confident. He was able to say what, what he needed to say. And so he said, you have said it so, Jesus replied, just affirming this, this idea. But then he was accused by the chief priests and the elders. And at that point, Jesus gave no answer. See, Jesus knew that arguing with these people who were against him wasn't going to help the situation. So he just remains silent. Uh, then Pilate asked, don't you hear this testimony that you're bring, they're bringing against you? 
But Jesus, again, made no reply, not even to a single charge. He wasn't going to have that argument. Right? So th- this, is, this is humility, but powerful humility. Confident humility. Humility to look at the, the, the face of, of, of those who are against you and to not fight, not fight back. I mean, what's, what's that going to do at this point? And we're told that uh, Pilate left with great amazement. He was amazed at what Jesus did. See, that, that's, when someone expresses true humility, it's amazing to everybody else because nobody is expecting that. Nobody's expecting powerful humility like Jesus expressed. And so Jesus is an incredible example of humility, powerful humility expressed in an incredible way at an incredibly difficult time in his experience. But fortunately, Jesus isn't just an example for us, that Jesus is indeed the one true hero of the Bible. There are no heroes in the Bible except for one, and Jesus is the one true hero in the Bible. And he's not just an example for us, because if I told you, okay, like, humility is, is, is essential, and Jesus was so humble, and he was powerful and humble, and go and do the same, you would be really depressed. Because you might feel, like, inspired for the moment, like, okay, Jesus did it, so I'm going to do it, and then you would leave here, and you would be confronted at a point where you needed to be powerfully humble, and you would fail. Because if you do it on your own, you're not going to do it on your own. So the good news is, not only is Jesus a great example for us, but because of Jesus' work, we have power to be different kind of people than we are naturally on our own. In Matthew chapter 11, Jesus' invitation, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus' invitation is to to give us the challenges. And so when we are challenged by the idea of being powerfully humble, confidently humble, when humbleness and transparency seems really difficult for us, when we need to confess our, our, our brokenness, when we need to confess that we've hurt somebody else or done something that's affected our relationship with God, when we need to repent, this is what David came to, the repentance. Repentance requires some humility. You have to to be humble and you repent. By the way, we've talked about it many times before here at Avon Hope. You know, repentance sounds like a big theological word, but it's very, very simple. It's to acknowledge where you have gone wrong and to turn around to go the other direction. My favorite analogy is you go in the subway, you get out in the neighborhood you've never been in before, and you start walking and you quickly realize that you're going in the wrong direction. What do you do if that happens to you? Sometimes you act cool like you know where you're going and you turn around and go around the block. Uh, but the smartest result is you repent. You, you acknowledge, oh, wait, you know, you go to the Google Maps or whatever, like I'm headed in the wrong direction, and you turn around, you repent. That's the idea of repentance. It's, so repentance, though, requires some humility. I mean, you can keep walking until you get to the East River and you're supposed to go to the, uh, the, you know, the west side and walk around the world, I guess, and you'll get to the destination. No, I'm still going the right way. Uh, repentance. Repentance is acknowledgement that you don't have it all together, and there's some humility involved in that. And this is the invitation in which Jesus is giving us power. That, look, look, Jesus has expressed true humility. And because Jesus has done for us what it's very difficult for us to do as we embrace his work, we have power to be confidently humble in all things too. David, by the way, references in Psalm 51 the Holy Spirit. Now, David was using power that, that was, was, was coming from what is to come. You, Jesus died on the cross 
nearly a thousand years after David. And so David was taking advantage of power that was rooted in what Jesus was going to do. We have the opportunity to take advantage of power from what Jesus has already done. It's the same power, though, the same Holy Spirit power. And so when we are needing to have humility, we're needing to repent, when we're needing to acknowledge where we stand in relationship with each other and not to be uh, over, over abundant in our thinking of ourselves, that comes from God's Spirit. It comes from the same place that David got his power to be repentant and humble and to be ultimately successful. And so today, as we continue this journey on the subject of success, and we realize like success is rooted in humility, and yet humility is difficult for us, we can take heart that there is one who has been humble in ways that we, we will never achieve on our own. And as we embrace his work, we have access to power, the power of confident and strong humility that we will never have on our own. And so as successful people or people who are de uh, desiring success, may we experience the humility that comes from the power of the Holy Spirit and that comes from the work of Jesus. And may we be successful in this broken world. In Christ, our hope lies. Amen.